Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadborn, back this week. And with me, as always, are Thomas Brooks. Hello. And Alyssa Jones. Hi, everyone. And joining us today, as we continue down into the realm of memory and cognition, is Dr. David Frank to talk to us about expertise, learning, and all sorts of things. Thank you for having me. So as we, we tell all of our guests, and uh, whenever we have a guest on, we let them kind of give the background introduction for themselves because we're probably going to bungle it somehow. And you're ultimately the expert. And so uh, I'll, I'll let you take it away. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so uh, I've been doing this for a little while now. I graduated from the University of North Carolina at Greensboro in 2015 with my doctorate doing mostly aging and skill acquisition stuff. I uh, did a little pit stop up in my home state of Ohio at a, at a postdoc at Case Western Reserve University. And then I've been here at Texas A&M University Commerce for the last five years. So today we're going to be delving into uh, a, a number of things uh, that kind of all revolve around uh, expertise predominantly. Um, and so I, I guess I guess uh, we, we should start with I guess kind of an introduction to, to kind of your your general research. You know, I guess what what is expertise, and what do you study in regards to it? So that's a, that's a great question. So expertise, um, the way you define it can vary a little bit, uh, but essentially it is elite performance. Um, usually implies something about experience, but um, really there's there's kind of two ways to to get really good at something. Uh, it can be through a lot of practice or through some level of talent. Um, when it comes to the study of expertise, I really look at uh, sort of the early stages for the most part with my research. Um, that's It's not exclusively the case, but mostly what I'm doing is what we actually call skill acquisition work. And so expertise has really been looked at from sort of two lenses, this let's get all the experts and see how they differ and what are they doing that's different versus let's get some people to get good at something and see what the process involves of how you get good at something. And that that's really been uh, the latter has been where I focus most of my effort, trying to determine what are the different mechanisms that make somebody just sort of otherworldly good, where you're just like, I, I can't even imagine being, being that good at it. Um, and what does that process look like? And so that's really the way I've approached it uh, in my own research. But really, expertise gets split into those two different areas of sort of the um real world bringing the experts, late game expertise versus developing expertise in the skill acquisition realm. Okay. Well, before we start, before Th Thomas throws this question out there, because it's going to be on my mind the entire time if I don't ask it first, but there's that like, I don't know how, I guess, misunderstood or how inaccurate it is, that kind of view that like to become an expert, you have to do something for like 50,000 hours or 10,000 hours. I, I, and then, and then I'll, I'll read something that's like, well, it's kind of a misnomer. Like how, I guess on the ball is that, or how completely, I guess almost pseudoscientific is it, uh, with, with that kind of a you know, bit of information out in the ether? That's a bit of a spicy question, Daniel. <laughs> it, it, indeed. Um, 
And it really dives into this. Um, it's almost like a, a bad 90s movie that just keeps getting remade over and over. There's been this constant sort of Francis Galton versus um, versus uh, Watson sort of argument between is it talent? Is it is it practice? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Um, that gets wrapped up in this. And the 10,000 hours rule really comes from a seminal paper on this uh, in 1993 by uh, Kay Anders Erickson and others that found that the average amount for their experts was 10,000 hours worth of practice uh, that they'd accumulated. And uh, they sort of ran with that. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell did in his book. And it's become this, oh, once you hit 10,000 hours, something magical happens and you're a wizard. And it's like, no, there were experts in that group that had half that practice who were actually at the top of that distribution of expertise. Um, I mean, some really phenomenal relative noobs who were performing at an elite level. But most people, yeah, had a lot of experience. And so on one hand, there's a, there's this kernel of truth of, yeah, most most things take a lot of experience. K. Anders Erickson actually, although he has at least at one time cited the 10,000 hours rule, uh, he's actually stuck more to the 10-year the rule, the, the late K. Anders Erickson. Uh, he's no longer with us. But uh, that was sort of his thing. So that takes about 10 years. But even then, the data have never really supported any hard figures. It really depends. I mean, if you're talking about walking, you get good at that in just a few years. Uh, but if you're talking about being an elite sprinter, it's a very different thing. Uh, likewise, if you want to be, you know, an elite uh, soccer player, well, that involves running and a few other things, too. And so it's really um, any of those hard rules are going to be pretty pretty bad. And other things you really can't devote 10 years to, um, or it's hard to devote 10 years to. Uh, yes, uh, you know, your your elite athletes have often done 10 years, but not always, especially when you look at, you know, Olympic gymnasts who peak yeah. at like 13, 14 years old. They've been doing it since they were four, maybe, but was that really necessary or is it important to start by yeah, seven or eight? And actually, that's an area where the data surprisingly show that people who start their sports later are more likely to reach an elite level than those people who start really early, which also sort of goes against this sort of hard, deliberate practice. You need 10,000 hours or 10 years. It really depends on what you're talking about. Uh, you know, if you're you're looking at NFL offensive linemen, a lot of those guys started playing football in high school because you really can't get big and strong. A lot of the abilities they need don't last. I, the, the largest eighth grader is not necessarily the largest senior. A lot of times he's some six foot guy who hit puberty early. And by senior year, he's the same size. Uh, by contrast, you know, building that sort of muscle mass requires, uh, requires some, some time and some, some uh, biological changes to take place. Uh, and then again, on the flip side, you look at like gymnasts who, who have to hit their prime at a certain age because they start losing flexibility or they start developing other characteristics that actually hurt their performance. Um, and that's all just to say that, uh, yeah, nothing magical happens at 10,000 hours. But if you want to get good at something, the key is to practice your butt off. That much is true. But don't think that just because you spend more hours than LeBron James on a basketball court that you'll necessarily be better than him either. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really fascinating 
uh, how some of these things play out and how things like starting early isn't always such a great thing, uh, particularly in sports also where you have a lot of overuse injuries. Um, if you start early and you do exclusively that sport, you wear those joints out in a way that you're just not supposed to do. Whereas you see a lot of these elite athletes are, are multi-sport athletes. Um, and then you have the same thing in, you know, cognitive fields. If all you do is study one thing all the time, uh, you might not reach the same levels if you yeah, branch out a little, a little bit every once in a while and, you know, bring, maybe bring in an idea from, you know, a slightly different domain. Uh, did not know it was a spicy of a take, the controversy involved, but no, that's a great, great answer. Yeah, that, that's, that's so practice, but not necessarily 10,000 10, hours of practice. That kind of gets me to my question is what kind of differences do we see? Maybe not necessarily just in performance, but cognitively between like experts and novices. And so you say that the typists can anticipate the judges. Uh, wording what they're going to say their verbiage so what does that say about maybe like the structure of expertise uh for how we interact with the world and within those tasks it can be beneficial um however you also see some of these chess prodigies that hit master level really early after just a few years um versus people who've been playing their whole life to get there uh the other thing you have to worry about with starting early or just sort of going too hard in general is you can run into burnout. And that is going to weed out some of these people. So um, the other thing that you have to think about in terms of, and this is less well-researched, but in terms of things like chess is you have, instead of physical variables like height, weight, you know, uh, muscle mass, you have cognitive variables. You have general fluid intelligence. How good are you at finding patterns and exploiting it? And that's really what chess is all about is learning patterns finding them, recognizing them. The best chess computers are basically um, machine learning memory systems that just grab all the good chess moves and say, well, last time somebody won a game, they did this. Um, that's way oversimplifying what they do, but same general idea. So yeah, I think uh, that might be an area where we see uh, starting early being a little more important, but again, it's it doesn't seem as necessary as a been uh, portrayed in the past i think so experts are better at chunking than novices are within their specific domain of knowledge practice and, and, and talent does play a little bit of a role as well <laughs> again i won't be lebron james no matter how much time i spend on the court even if i were six eight i might not ever be lebron james um, although that is a sport we're starting at age 39 would probably be a detriment as well Athletic peaks matter as well. <laughs> as do cognitive peaks, actually. If you look at your Jeopardy champions, those are usually people in their maybe late 20s, early 30s, maybe early 40s, because you've got to be really quick. You've got to be able to not only have built up all the knowledge, but you've got to be able to pull it out quick enough. And as we age, our brains slow down. And so you also get different peaks at different uh, professions a lot of researchers do some of their best work in their thirties, not necessarily, but often that's a very different peak than an athlete gets or a gym or an, whether they're a gymnast or a football player, different peaks at sort of different levels. Um, and they've got some really fascinating stuff too, with like uh, courtroom typing. So the, the transcription people that type up everything that's said in the courtroom, uh, where they actually 
are able to maintain a really high level despite the fact that their keystrokes per second sort of go down because they spend so much time in those courtrooms with the same judges and the same lawyers all the time that they can anticipate what's coming next. And they're actually moving towards the keys or the likely keys before they say something. And so they're sort of working a step ahead like a Jedi um, who's then able to look really fast at age, whatever Yoda was, um, when in fact they are, if you just gave nonsense words, they actually type much slower than a younger typist. But when it comes to actual um, job relevant stimuli, they process them much faster. I do have a question in relation to what you just said, David. Um, in terms of things that are not necessarily physically exhausting on the body, like chess, for instance, would you say that starting early and that kind of skill uh, would be beneficial or is it really just doesn't matter? That's a complicated question to answer because it's one of those things. Another challenge with expertise is each field that you can be an expert in has its own quirks. And so what the structure looks like can be a little different across fields, but you do get some similarity. So if you think about things like chunking, um, one of the ways that we can get around sort of our limited short-term memory span of four plus or minus one items is that we group things together. If I give you a string of letters, it's really hard to remember more than you know, five or so. But if I give you letters that are things like CIA and FBI, they're much easier to remember because that's just one unit. Well, experts can also see things in large chunks. Um, and so that's one of the strategies that then allows them to process a lot of information very quickly. Uh, chess experts will often see entire sections of the board, perhaps as a single chunk of, well, this arrangement here is really familiar. And lo and behold, if you give them random arrangements, they're, they're pretty terrible compared to um, even non-chess experts. So they're all remembering just a very small subset of the board. And at this point, I've forgotten what your question was because my own working memory is failing me hardcore um, later in the day. And I don't know if I've answered you or not. Well, that, that's, that's cool. So you just, it's really all going to be down to practice practice and time spent developing the skill. Yes. And that's one of the ways that we see experts getting better. Another thing that you learn, uh, the longer that you're at a particular job, is you also start to learn what's relevant, what's not. And this can happen very quickly. This is sort of the skill acquisition stuff that I study, where it's like, when you're a novice, you're sort of looking everywhere, you're processing every piece of information. And when you look at somebody who's been doing it for a while, they start, their eye movements can start to look a lot more strategic. And so you see this in things like, like chess expertise. Uh, chess experts actually look at certain parts of the board a lot, and there's other parts they ignore because they're not relevant. And they're able to very quickly triage what's relevant. Um, in a laboratory setting, uh, we actually um, did this with older adults, but this uh, paradigm was originally developed by Heider and French. Um, where they gave people letter strings and they told them to look for errors. But the trick is they restricted all the errors to the very end of the string. And lo and behold, over time, people just quit looking at the early part of the string to the point where you could slip errors in later in the task and they wouldn't even spot them. And sure enough, eye tracking show that they just learned that that part's not actually relevant. You told me it was, but now I know better. 
Uh, it's kind of the same way that whenever you pull out your phone, you go to a website and a bunch of stuff starts popping up. You just immediately, all right, I just want to close the thing in the lower right-hand corner because I know it's an ad playing. And you don't look at it to see if it's relevant. You just assume it's a video and close it because you know you've been to that website. You know, every time you go to the Associated Press website, a stupid video starts playing in the corner and you just hold your thumb over till the X appears and, and then you close it and then you can read your article. And the next screen pops up and you close that. Now you're actually good. <laughs> Same kind of thing happens with expertise. You learn what to look at, what not to look at. Right. Unless you're a baggage screener, apparently. That's the one area where <laughs> the pros are as bad as the undergrads. Um, that said, that probably works into where uh, the specific characteristics of a task can get in the way of skill acquisition. So baggage experts are looking for guns and bombs, right? Um, or small, you know, bottles of perfume that are more than so many ounces. And, you know, they see those bottles of perfume pretty often. So they'll throw out all of your good stuff, but they don't see assault rifles very often. And so those will slip through, which is kind of maybe not full assault rifles, but handguns, other things. They're really bad at finding them because they're such low probability events that you don't actually get a lot of practice spotting them. You get a lot of practice just sort of saying, yep, 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 that's a bag. That's a bag. That's uh, oh, there's a bottle. We'll throw that one out. Uh, oh, that looks pretty big. That's a bottle of Desante. We got to pitch it. That's the stuff they get good practice in. And so task characteristics can both screw up how quickly you learn if you aren't getting good feedback. That's the other thing. Nobody says, by the way, you missed the pistol yesterday. Like nobody catches that. They're, they're the only one doing that job. You don't have six other people watching. And so you don't get knowledge of the results is really critical for skill acquisition. Um, so between that and low probability events, it's hard to get good at that. Uh, by contrast, a lot of the work we do, a lot of the sports and games people play, a lot of the jobs they do, they get alerts when they screw up. Um, they get feedback whenever they screw up. And then the other flip side of it is it's even difficult to know um, whether or not you need certain cognitive abilities or again, sort of domain specific. How do we know which task is going to involve which abilities and where are certain strategies going to apply. Um, and that's the other area where task characteristics come into play is if you've got a task where you can eliminate a lot of irrelevant information, you're going to get a lot better um, performance quickly, but you're also potentially, and this is one of the things we're working on in, in my lab now, potentially going to get somebody who's better at inhibiting doing learning faster because that's the skill they need is the ability to block out the irrelevant stuff. Or if you're an air traffic controller and you're trying to track a bunch of planes at once, you probably need the ability to keep a lot of stuff in working memory or maybe really high processing speed so that you can refixate all those planes and pull back the information you just forgot before they all crash into one another. Uh, but trying to figure out what are those task characteristics specifically load on and demand certain cognitive or physical abilities has been uh, a challenge that the field has not really uh, done a whole lot with. And so that's one of the areas that I've been really interested in, um, trying to find something beyond just saying, well, okay, fluid intelligence might be good for everything. Well, yeah, but you've only got to be so smart to learn how to use a cash register. I mean, enough practice, you get it. But again, I don't think I should ever be an air traffic controller. Something tells me that people with ADHD are going to struggle with that. Uh, like myself, not trying to throw ADHD people under the bus. I can only do that because because that's me. So let's get into 
specifically what you're interested in with task characteristics and skill acquisition, what does that look like within a lab setting? So I, I love this question because um, there wasn't really a good paradigm to look at this. Uh, it was It's one of those questions that hadn't really been answered uh, very well. Uh, but there was some evidence that showed that things like fluid intelligence, as well as deliberate practice, are differentially predictive across different tasks. But like, why? What, what characteristics make some of those tasks rely on one more than the other? So we wanted to create this paradigm where we could manipulate things like whether or not a task is dynamic and constantly moving versus static, where you can sort of pause and take your time. Um, or whether or not you have to deal with sort of continuous information or if you get nice, nice neat categories. And so uh, this is one of the, the questions I want to tackle in, in my postdoc uh, with Brooke McNamara up at, up at Case Western Reserve in Cleveland. And I came in with a list of different tasks that I thought I could manipulate features and a whole list of pros and cons. You know, this one's great, but I don't know what it'll look like if we take away the dynamic element. Is it even challenging? Is everybody going to be at ceiling? And and the first thing I had listed was Plants vs. Zombies, because it was a game my kids were playing. And we never got to item two on that list. Uh, so we built our own version of Plants vs. Zombies so that we could manipulate each of these features. Uh, so I now own the the worst stop frame <laughs> version of Plants vs. Zombies ever. That's awesome. Um, and then the funnest part is, you know, when you're a researcher, you've got like free reign to just use stimuli as you want because of creative common license and uh, it's education and research. The second you go to publish it, if you want to include a screenshot, the journal suddenly needs electronic arts and pop cap games permission, yep. which they very quickly granted, which was really cool. So um, it's neat to have an email from electronic arts uh, in, in just, you know, sitting around saying, I'm allowed to use your stuff for free because it's education and research. Um, so shout out to them for being super cool. Their lawyers were very quick and prompt and understanding. Uh, but yeah, so that's basically what we've done. We've we've created a bunch of zombies that wear different colored jackets. And the, the redder the jacket, the faster they move. And we got them different sizes. And the bigger they are, the harder they are to kill. Um, and then we've dumbed the game down to where you only have one type of plant. But everything's so much harder. It's not a very forgiving game. Um, you can lose really easily. And so as people play it, they get a little bit better. But if you put them in a dynamic condition where things are constantly moving and they can't pause, it's funny. They actually enjoy that game more. Students leave those set those sessions much happier, but uh, their learning curves are a lot shallower. And if you give them a secondary task at the same time, their learning curves get really shallow. So if you can tie up working memory, they start looking, uh, they, they don't look like very good learners anymore. And so that's that was sort of one way to try and establish that working memory might be necessary for doing dynamic tasks. Now we're doing some sort of structural equation modeling stuff where we just go in and measure all these things, working memory, logical reasoning, updating, uh, to see what what correlates the sort of multivariate space. Uh, but that was that was sort of one of our most robust manipulations. And, and if you ask them to do any sort of dual tasking, uh, everything just just falls apart, even in a static environment where they can pause and they'll pause and take twice as long and still only learn half the task, which is kind of astounding. 
um, that people think they're so good at multitasking. And yet we've got evidence that if you give them two things at once to say, yes, yeah, switch back and forth between these at your leisure and you make it static. So it's not like whenever you're trying to text and drive, which, OK, you should never be trying to do that. But if you did, you can't look at the road and the phone at the same time. And your hands can only be in one place at the same time. There's all these bottlenecks just in terms of behavior and and perception. We've taken that away. We give them extra time. We gave them a separate a separate avatar because we are using avatar as opposed to a mouse based version. So actually move crazy Dave along on the screen um, and, and plant stuff. We gave them two crazy days and said you can switch between them. You have twice as many resources and they just don't learn anything about one half of the task where they collect energy. All they learn is how to kill zombies. And it's just kind of fascinating to see. And, and um, in some ways it's very consistent with previous literature, but in other ways we pulled out a potential confound where um, all those tasks were dynamic and we've shown that dynamics really make a big difference in learning curves. Um, by contrast, we gave people continuous zombies where they, they blended from blue slow zombies to purple into red. And versus just nice neat categories, red, uh, red, blue, or or green. I think we actually had in the middle. And no, doesn't matter. They learn just fine. Really baffling. Um, and that one really surprised us that people were good with continuums because we didn't think they would be. And we don't know that they weren't categorizing, but whatever they were doing, they were doing it really effectively. Which surprised me because, I mean, you think about people talking about, you know, millennials and then somebody says, I'm not a millennial, I'm an exennial. Like we, we want to categorize all these continuous things like time, um, presumably to, to the detriment of accuracy. And yet, at least in this paradigm, people did it really well and really effectively. Um, so, you know, maybe we should just stop doing that and say I'm a mid, I'm an 82 baby. And, and just leave it at that, because apparently that's not that complicated, uh, <laughs> at least in our research. Um, that, is, that, is, that is one one study, um, but one that we found really fascinating. That facet didn't really play out, didn't seem to be more cognitively demanding than a nice categorical task. Just more evidence that my students need to focus on one thing at a time. One thing at a time, and don't worry if it's got a gradation. <laughs> it turns out we're we're quite capable of understanding the spectrum. At least in that study, <laughs> yes. it suggests as much. Um, I'm I'm still cautious about that. You never know what to do with a null. You know, <laughs> there's always that possibility that if you manipulate a different paradigm, things might come out a little differently. Um, and one of the sort of long-term goals of this line of research is to start looking at interactions. What happens when you have a dynamic, continuous environment? Does that suddenly get hard, whereas a dynamic, categorical environment is maybe less hard? Um, but again, we're sort of, we still feel like we're in the infancy of this line of research because it's one of those things that hasn't really been looked at. Everybody's been so busy having, again, that sort of recurring nightmare of nature versus nurture that they haven't stopped to ask when nature, when nurture, um, and, and why do they, why does it differ from, from time to time? I asked two in a row. It's y'all's turn. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I, I guess we could we could move on uh, down our our little outline list. Um, like on on one hand, like this is all very like it's got to be incredibly exciting, kind of like being at the cusp of the beginning of this line of research that that's you know kind of delving into new water, um, and adding to our our kind of existential. You know that if, if we've been talking about this this whole season has been very existential for us and now knowing that researchers peak in their like early 30s uh i'm done i'm out um i have i have peaked uh oh no i think we've got like a whole decade at our prime though oh, whereas oh. like nfl players it's like 24 25 maybe 26 and then you're washed up especially if you're running back um, no, I think I think as researchers we've got at least ten years, and our decline's really gradual. Okay, um, I'm just going to keep telling myself that. Yeah, if, if I can make it through my 40s, you know, still doing research, and I need to get full professor at some point. Uh, so, uh, you talked a little bit about like practice being one of those kind of important things, and um, maybe you could speak on that a little bit. This this kind of role of of practice i i've tried to adapt that into my uh, teaching philosophy after taking several classes in educational psychology and, and kind of that basic understanding that practice is really important failure is also important because we can learn from that and you kind of mm-hmm. mentioned that the difference between the um like the football player versus the uh you know the the, the case where the, you're not getting that feedback you're not getting the that baggage screener right <laughs> right which I've, I've got a study I tell tell my social psych students about how we spent a billion dollars trying to train people to read facial cues and it was no better than chance I'm like more baggage screener you know throw them under the bus like the TSA is not doing great. Although it's great that they're not getting feedback in that the, they're not shootings and explosions on these planes for the most part. We've avoided those big things. Yeah. Uh, but it, but occasionally when it has happened, it's like, oh, the passengers noted that he was trying to explode his shoe. Uh, and right. so they stopped him. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, if you could uh, I guess delve a little bit deeper into kind of that, that aspect of the importance of practice and and how it's it's kind of crucial to a lot of this stuff, a lot of lot of learning processes. So a, a, a lot of the issues with practice is, and this has been a, a real debate in the literature. And unfortunately, it's one of those things that's really hard to measure. Um, at least when you talk about sort of the extreme end of the really good experts, the people who are performing at an elite level. That's never because we brought them into a lab and randomly assigned them to a condition. And so when you start looking at that, you start asking, well, how long have they been practicing? What do they do? What you find is there's a lot of variability, not just in how long they practice, but what kinds of practice are they doing? So there's been debates over, do you need a trainer? Can you be your own trainer? Um, And at what point do you need to sort of change up your practice so that you are challenging yourself and working on your weakest skills? And so those are all things that uh, a lot of experts, I think, do a great job of. And frankly, a lot of coaches and a lot of trainers and a lot of, um, if you want to call them talent developers, uh, end up doing just sort of through their, their own process of training people is identify their weaknesses, find something to practice that'll work on that. Um, 
if if I can use an example from uh, a distant member of my academic family tree, uh, Randy Angle, and and I, I won't say say who, but he had a grad student. He's Randy Angle. If you don't know him, is a working memory guy over at Georgia Tech, and he just has the Midas touch when it comes to students and postdocs. I mean, they, they're they're he's had. So such great success as a mentor. He's, he's really phenomenal. If you've never met him, he's he's great. Uh, one of his students really struggled with presentation, had him come in and give him a presentation on, I think it was an article, every week, one-on-one, while he critiqued him. That's really targeting somebody's weakness with, in this case, a trainer, and giving immediate feedback on stuff um, in a, frankly, a very intense environment. I mean, imagine going up to a, a giant in the field and you have to present to him one-on-one and then, then sit through the criticism every week. Um, and again, I won't, I won't name names, but I will say I've, I've seen this person talk and I never would have guessed that they would have ever struggled. That is brilliant presenter, just gives great talks, um, which is not surprising, but again, it's sort of, that targeted practice and finding the creative ways in order to practice more. That's clearly part of it. It's clearly something experts are doing really tough to study because it's really tough to bring somebody in the lab and experimentally ask them to do these things um, for really extended periods of time. I mean, especially if, if you believe, and, and I personally don't fall on the side of the fence, but if you do believe the K. Anders Erickson 10-year rule, that's a really, really expensive longitudinal study to run there. Um, Just a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, I, I often joke that, that we need to, you know, just start a school for kids and uh, kids who want to try hard and just turn them into random experts. Like you're going to be an expert chess player and you're going to be the best Super Mario Brothers uh, gamer to ever live and just put them through rigorous training and have a control child as well that doesn't do any of that and see what happens. Um, unfortunately, that's really hard to do let alone manipulate all the different variables that could go into types of practice. And so it becomes this very correlational approach of let's describe what the pre-existing groups do and try and make an inference about it. Makes it really challenging. And, and it, perhaps uh, that's why I've always focused on the early stuff where it's like, let's get them in here for a couple hours and see what happens. Um, watch, watch the learning curves. Most of the action happens early on anyway. That's where the big changes are. Um, but in truth, what happens later down the line becomes incrementally harder to study. And so practice clearly important, got to target it in different ways, got to get creative, but we really know less about that process than I wish we did because it's one of the harder things to study. By contrast, list learning, uh, just learning lists of words. We know a lot about that because you can knock that stuff out in a couple minutes in the lab. Um, and so, of course, those studies end up being multi-experiment papers, uh, whereas experimental stuff uh, or, or rather expertise stuff that's looking at uh, sort of true experts tends to be uh, smaller N and maybe not eight experiments in one paper. <laughs> this is something that I've been thinking about while we're talking how do we even determine expertise? Like, what is the criteria for, say, choosing these experts for these, like, tell me what you did over the last 10 years kind of studies? How do we know that they're experts? 
that that is another spicy question. Um, one that's been argued about a lot. And so sometimes we'll do something like if you're three standard deviations above the mean. Um, all right, you're an outlier. Cool. Who's me? If I want expert golfers, am I looking at three standard? Do I have a bunch of people play around a golf and look at who scores three standard deviations above the mean? Or do I have a bunch of golfers play mm. around a golf? Because the golfers already are a separate population with a much higher, well, in their case, much lower mean number of strokes per per 18 holes than the average person who may or may not have picked up a club. When you take the whole distribution, the average is going to be pretty abysmal. Um, and so that's always part of the issue. It's really difficult to define expertise that way because not only do you run into this problem of well, how many what who constitutes an expert how extreme of an expert expert do you need to be um but you've also got this issue of well what if i'm from a really small field not many people do this uh what if i'm an expert at bocce ball bocce ball a competitive bocce ball probably not the 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 largest sport uh compared to competitive soccer which is played around the world football um that's a that's a substantially larger pool of people and being in the upper, you know, half percentile or better is going to mean something very different. Um, it also raises a question about new fields. Um, if you look at a game like uh, Magic the Gathering that came out in the mid 90s, that field hasn't been around as long. But somebody who was an expert and a top player in 1995 wasn't necessarily a top player in 1997. Because three years later, more people were playing, and you really see this in the area of poker. After they started televising the World Series of Poker, and some some nobody beat a lot of the quote unquote pros. Uh, his name was Moneymaker was his was his last name, uh, and he did make a lot of money. And since then, he's been a, a middling level player apparently. Um, but he won it all, and it created this huge poker boom where all these people started getting into it. And the movie Rounders came out and, um, somewhere around that time. And so there's just more people playing competitive poker now than there ever was before. And so sure enough, some of the top players have dropped down and would no longer be three standard deviations above the poker tournament mean. And so it becomes really difficult. I personally think that the better way to define expertise would be not through the achievement level, but through the process. That whenever your cognitive process starts to change, when you're one of those people who looks at a chessboard and sees large arrangements as single units, you're now processing it like an expert. To me, that is, to me, that's the hallmark of expertise, but that's because I'm a cognitive psychologist and I want to focus on the cognitive and strategic elements. That's what I study. Um, but I think that's another way to look at it. And unfortunately, that's not really a way that's, that it's been looked at much, but to look at at what point are you making this shift from processing information like a noob to processing information like a pro. And I think that's actually a much better cutoff um, because it may very well be that some of your top players in newer games or newer fields, your top performers, are actually not really processing the information at a very different level from the other beginners. And over time, I think you'll see that shift. It, the more chunking you're seeing, I think that is a hallmark of expertise. 
the more ignoring of irrelevant information or hyper-focusing on the most relevant information or just viewing the information differently. There was a a study looking at uh, sort of skill acquisition in real-time strategy games. And what they showed is that people went from sort of like, okay, that's a truck and that's a tank. I put those two together because they have wheels. Um, And these guys are both on feet. Whereas the experts viewed it as this is a specialist unit, this is an early game unit, that's a late game unit. And as the as their experience progressed, they started getting a little bit more like the experts, but they really weren't at the same level. They were still chunking things together, often based on surface features that weren't necessarily indicative of game mechanics, the, the important features. And so that's another factor of, of are you latching onto the surface stuff or are you seeing sort of the deep structure analogs between components? Um, and again, unfortunately, that's that's all very much realm specific and <laughs> makes it more challenging to identify. But I think that's what you want to do in a given realm rather than say, where do you fall relative to your peers? Say, what are the processes that differ between the upper echelon, maybe, and maybe then you start with three standard deviations above the mean versus the average player um, or versus a beginner. And from there, once you identify those, you sort of recategorize everybody based on sort of what came out in the averages and then try and refine that. Um, but it is a, it's a very challenging thing to do. It's really fascinating with the, the games and like Magic the Gathering players. I've delved into the world of you know, like your your gaming world champions who like the next year are just completely irrelevant because mm-hmm. they're not good anymore. Or or even the people who can maybe mm-hmm. transfer some skills, but once the game's better known, like like the sort of meta underlying, you know, late game, early game, like like strategies that come into play that can be can be overridden with like better knowledge and better deep experience or you know, um and, and so it's 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 really fascinating to kind of delve into those worlds i i like that that process definition though over just like yo this person got a world champion a decade ago they're definitely an expert in the game like well to an extent they could probably still do very well but are they holding up or now they're low rank compared to some of these newer people um that's the other thing is a game like chess hasn't really changed over time. It's the same board, same pieces. Magic the Gathering comes out with multiple sets every year. The game's constantly evolving. Um, the game of American football, the rules changed a little over time, but the strategies have changed drastically. Um, and so some of these are really moving mm-hmm. targets because they just keep evolving. Um, and that's true, I think, whenever you look at the job sphere as well, um, air traffic control today probably looks very different than it did in the past, both because of the number of aircraft, but also because you have different technology, you have better technology, uh, better ways of displaying the information that might ease some of that working memory load. Um, and so a lot of these things kind of need to be revisited from time to time as well, because unless you've got a static game like chess, it just hasn't changed since... Um, actual kings moved the little pieces that that resembled the houses they were living in um, and the men they were commanding. Uh, If you don't have a domain like that, you do get a lot of these uh, sort of fluidity and changes over time with what an expert should be doing based on the current state of things. 
I mean, even even thinking about research, I've, I've been talking with one of my thesis students about this study that we're going to try to replicate for his thesis. It's from like the 1950s, and the extent was a correlation. Like it was a several correlations, and I'm like, yes, because you could do those by hand in the 60s. Now we're talking about like, well, we got to do structural equation modeling, <laughs> factor analysis multiple linear regression like we can do all this and that's a good way to kind of bring this in but those are the skills you need now correlation don't cut it yeah. no more <laughs> david i was wondering you've talked a bit about working memory being related to uh, expertise but more specifically i was wondering if you could talk a bit about maybe other cognitive abilities or even personality traits that may be positively correlated with, you know, the tendency or likelihood of developing an expertise, regardless of what that expertise is in. But I'm just kind of curious of, about whether or not there's certain characteristics across experts that you could potentially pinpoint um, in terms of, you know, their their predisposition maybe to engage in things like deliberate practice or maybe their grit. I'm not really sure what would drive somebody to be motivated to spend the amount of energy and, and dedication that it would take to develop the expertise. So that's a great question. Some of the stuff's in its, in its infancy, um, admittedly with the, with the cognitive variables, we're really interested in things like working memory, um, I mean, there's a lot of research on working memory, but specific to different areas of expertise is, is something new that we're doing. Processing speed's another one. Uh, updating to some extent can be dissociated from other types of working memory, um, as well as logical reasoning, which is kind of kind of messy. We've got great measures for it, but nobody can tell you what it really is other than pattern recognition um, or intelligence, because that's a more helpful term. Um, now, in terms of personality, uh, I think that's a really fascinating realm. I would certainly expect things like grit or conscientiousness, which of which grit is probably really just sort of a, a subfacet, are going to be really important um, to, again, just as you speculated, doing a lot of difficult work, um, which I think is actually the, the quote from Kay Andersa Erickson that I'm uh, possibly butchering. But essentially, that was one of the things that he argued was, if there's any individual difference, it's, it's the individual difference in drive to do this. Um, and I do think that that's a really important uh, facet as well. Um, other things that we think are potentially uh, related to this, and again, this is very much in its infancy, is we're currently looking at things like BIS and BAS. So BIS is behavioral inhibition system and, or yes, and BAS is uh, behavioral approach. And so basically, sort of your reward-seeking behaviors fall under bass. And so some people are really motivated by rewards. They want to win big. Um, other people are very loss-averse. And so that's more bis. It's a don't let anything bad happen to me. And they're actually only very loosely correlated. Um, so you can actually be like, man, I want to win big, but man, I'm afraid to lose. <laughs> you can be both. Or you can be like, yeah, win or not, I don't know. I don't care if I win or lose. Uh, I'm just going to roll with it. Uh, you can imagine many of your gamblers are probably very high bass and very low bis. So they're willing to suffer the loss for the potential reward. Um, in a study that was actually looking uh, 
at sort of ideal decision-making and whether or not people could learn to make sort of just on the fly without a formula, intuitive, uh, mathematically ideal wagers in sort of an investment setting. Um, one of the things we found is during the feedback stage where they were basically just trying to learn basic things, high bass people actually learned better, um, which was something we weren't really expecting. We were expecting that to really matter. We were actually expecting if you're too high bass, you're actually going to do worse because you're going to over wager. But they were actually just better at learning this stuff, too. And so that's a, another component that could influence motivation. Um, anecdotally, I know there's been some stuff looking at people on the autism spectrum disorder or uh, sorry, the, the autism spectrum, uh, people with ASD and arguing that some of those individuals, because they have sort of this mental rigidity, they find one thing they really like and they just think about it all the time. Um, that, that sort of underlies this uh, sort of notion of the autistic savant where because they spend so much time at it, they just get really good at it. Like a, a in one case, I think there was a kid who could draw trains with just sort of ridiculous detail. And they're like, that train's going 65 miles an hour. How does he know what's on it? How does he know all these details? Because well, he, he sat and waited for it every day of his life because that was the best part of his day. Um, and so that's a very different set of motivations. And so to the extent that you're highly motivated, and if we can predict who will be highly motivated, I think those are potential individual differences. Um, at the same time, I think there's that other messy thing where sometimes you get motivated by, we, we can't be motivated about something we don't know about. And sometimes it's having somebody else who's really motivated, excited that gets us into things. Um, I, I know a number of researchers who sort of shifted gears because they found somebody they just enjoyed working with. Um, but yeah, I, hopefully we'll have more information on that in the future. We're also uh, potentially going to be doing some stuff that's looking at the way that hot and cold cognition play into performance um, with certain task features to see if there are certain personality facets that can predict who's going to sort of be good under pressure versus who is good in a nice static environment where they can sit down and reason through it um, in the way that we often do as researchers versus who can do it under sort of under fire and um, to do that, we're probably going to soak their feet in really cold water because that stresses people and seems to be the the um, the standard procedure for stressing people in a lab is just make them physically uncomfortable with heat and cold. Well, we are almost at the hour. Do we have any final questions? I mean, I I think I think. David, you answered our, our typical question of like, what would you do if ethics and money wasn't an issue? And you were like, well, we would just take a bunch of kids and put them in a school for 10 years and make them <laughs> experts. Oh, yeah. And then we usually ask, what do the future dissertations look like of undergrads who listen to this podcast? And you have given us a multitude of future dissertations <laughs> in this field. So my question is, there's a bias of the week. Yes. Did I commit it? Ooh. Uh, I don't know. I think I think as researchers, the bias of the week. Um, I've I've been been kind of waffling. We're only we only have a couple left because our bias of the week this whole season has been brought to us by Kahneman and Sversky. 
um, because they have like a thousand biases. Um, I mean, at least a dozen. So Kahneman and Zversky, 1979, loss aversion. When the dis the disutility of giving up an object is greater than the utility associated with acquiring it. And so I'd wonder if becoming an expert in Magic the Gathering at a very young age. As someone who has uh, a number of Magic the Gathering cards sitting on my nice. desk right now. Um, yeah, like giving them up <laughs> uh, might be worth more than, than, than what it cost me to acquire them. <laughs> For, for what it's worth, I spent hours building a Hammer deck, and it was really obvious after the first two minutes that that was a waste of time. But once I had spent 30 minutes on it, I really couldn't turn back. Yeah. Um, so yeah. maybe not in this podcast, but certainly this month, I may have ordered several lobster-themed cards uh, from Magic the Gathering, which is probably why that example was right there on the top of my head. <laughs> I... I, I have a I have a commander deck that's all themed around cats and dogs, and so <laughs> I, I just got it in my head that I'm gonna do a cat deck, and then I was like, I'm gonna do a cat and dog deck. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely some loss aversion there. If you asked me to get rid of it, it would mm, it'd be a lot. I put a lot of work into it, and also spent more money than I'm willing to admit uh, on. Magic the Gathering in general. So I think uh, I think oh. the best example of that is probably the F thirty five. Oh, fighter jet. Yes, sunk cost fallacy is so bad on that vehicle. Um, it basically, at one point, they realized we could just build four separate jets, one for each branch of the military, and probably save money and have better fighters. And they're like, sunk several trillion dollars into this. You're going to finish, it. and it's like. Uh, I guess we'll sink several trillion more. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, the jokes on our allies who are buying them. <laughs> I got confused for a second. I thought we were talking about cards and then we were talking about planes. And this whole time I'm like, wait, we're talking about grad school? This is what <laughs> happens. This is what yeah. happens when, when you invite the professor, the absent-minded professor to a podcast that gets recorded at 7 p.m. Um, <laughs> you hear about every us. topic at the same time. No, you are definitely uh, cut from the same Dr. Henley cloth. <laughs> <laughs> that, I take that as a compliment. Absolutely. No, uh, I I'm always walk away. About that. <laughs> Love having Dr. Henley on. We learned like a thousand other things that we didn't know that we didn't know by the time we're done. Yeah, I told my sci-fi group I'm going to take them to the zoo and just ramble on about animal cognition and how it may or may not relate to human cognition. That's um, beautiful. That's which awesome. I can oddly do because I took a whole course as an undergrad in primate cognition. Or not primate cognition, but uh, primate behavior. Uh, it was called primate societies, but you in the process of learning about how cool chimps are at making tools, we learned, oh, finches do this too. And the archer fish also spits water at bugs to knock them in the water so it can eat them. Is that a tool? Mm. And then you start contrasting that with human tool use. And the next thing you know, you're like, I've got an entire lecture just walking around the Dallas Zoo. Um, and that's outdoors, so it's COVID friendly. 
There you uh, go. So that, that's... by COVID friendly, I mean not good for COVID yeah. if you're COVID. Yeah. Uh, good for if you don't want COVID. Right. And so, uh, yeah, that's that's on our agenda at some point to find a good group rate and walk around when it's a little chilly out because the animals are more active then. Um, in the middle of the summer in Texas, the big cats are like, yeah, I don't want to move either. Um, we don't we don't even get shiner in here. At least you guys have a beer garden. This is bull crap. Um, by contrast, uh, when it starts getting chilly, they have to get up and move around if they're too cold. So you can utilize that to your advantage. If you ever go to the zoo, go when it's chilly and you'll actually see uh, a lot of cool stuff with the big cats will be up moving around. They might even make some noise. Otters, if you ever find otters in the cold, they just swim all day, uh, keep their keep their heat level up. I'm just rambling now. Oh, I no, assume you're going to cut half of this. Ah. <laughs> See, that's what everyone thinks. I just leave it in. That's, there is no editing process. That's just there to make you feel comfortable. It's going to be it's going to be my bias, the illusion of editing. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So I I guess on that we'll 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 bid our listeners adieu. Thank you uh very much uh, Dr. Frank for joining us. Uh, this is this has been great. Thank you Thanks so for much. Thanks for having me. It's Thank uh, you so much. Pleasure uh, meeting you, Daniel, and great to see Thomas and Alyssa again, as always. Yeah, yeah, same, same, and we'll definitely have to have you back on. We'll we'll talk primates and animal cognition. Cool. I can I can I can sort of hold my own on that one. So, so yeah, does that mean I get to talk about octopus? Yes, we could each bring an animal. I can talk about corvids. I can talk about corvids all day. So I want to talk about the whales. So <laughs> nice. Oh, great. We're good. We'll, okay, we'll plan that in a couple of months. We'll, we'll get the semester over with. Sounds good. And we'll get back in touch with you. So, yeah. On that note, uh, we'll we'll bid our listeners adieu. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye.